If you would, let's turn one more passage. First Samuel 25. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. First Samuel 25, 1 through 9. Then Samuel died. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now there's an aside here. Now this man's name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to these words, In David's name, then they waited. The word of the Lord. We'll get to that in a minute. I have software in my computer. And this software, it can, if you, I'm sure that I probably forgot how to do this. But um, there's software in the computer and you can tell the computer to find every sermon that I've ever preached on trials and tribulation. And that software will also... If I tell it to, if I remember how to tell it to do this, it will find every time in a sermon that I've talked about trials, tribulation, affliction, and suffering. It will tell me every time. And I would probably think that it would probably say that every sermon has one of those words in it. I think it would probably ping every single sermon. Because Jesus tells us in John 14 that in this life you and I will have trials. We will have Tribulation, And there's another thing that Jesus tells us in this life that we are going to have. And we're going to see it today. In this life you have another T. Temptations. We're going to face temptations. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. And we just prayed a few minutes ago. We prayed the Lord's Prayer where we say, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And don't ever think, you know, that when we pray that, we're praying for, for the Father not to lead us into temptation as if He tempts us. He does not tempt us. Uh, but we're praying that God would keep us from temptation. And if we do enter into a time of temptation, that He would deliver us and support us in the midst of it, even to find, as we hear the Apostle Paul tell, tell us, to find that way of escape. You and I are going to face temptation every day until we uh, either go to glory 
when Jesus comes or we, we die, but we are going to face temptations. Augustine said this, a saint's whole life is temptation. Our whole life is temptation. Now, we have temptations that come from within and from without. And it's a wonderful truth that we're all adopted children. We're God's children. That's a great truth. But here's the other side of it. Even though we're God's children, sin remains in us. We talked about this yesterday. It was a really good conversation. Jesus Christ reigns over us if we're Christians. But sin still remains in us if we are true Christians. And Thomas Watson puts it like this. He says about our sin that remains. He says, everyone is Satan to himself. Have you ever heard what Pogo, the cartoon figure Pogo says? I saw the enemy and the enemy was us. (laughs) Okay. And James writes, every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. So we must be in the business of putting sin to death as we go through our lives. We have temptations from within. We also have temptations from without. And the chief person that tempts us is Satan. Satan is a roaring lion. He looks for someone to devour. And even though the cross has crushed him on the head, he still has not been cast into prison just yet. And this means that he roams around in the world to tempt us. To tempt us, maybe tonight, to think about other things besides what the preacher preaches. He is tempting us. And the burden of the sermon is that we face temptations. So stick with me as we move through these three points. First, you and I face ongoing temptations and there is victory. Sometimes I don't think we think about this victory, but there is victory. David has been going through many temptations. And Saul, in chapter 18, began to secretly desire David to die. Chapter 19, all the way to the end of the book, he's seeking to put David to death. So David is ongoing, going through these temptations to hate this man. To be full of angry passions towards Saul. To be full of bitterness towards Saul. To think, surely my life would be so much better if this man was not around Anymore, And as we think about David, don't think of him as some superman. He was just like you and me. He didn't have some... One day I was talking to a friend, my friend Wayne in California, and he said, you know, we're not Teflon. We don't have hearts that are Teflon. We're not steel. David wasn't a man of, of, you know, superman, the man of steel. He wasn't. He wasn't the man of steel. He was tempted within and he was tempted without to be full of bitterness. And so the question is this, with all these ongoing temptation in David's life, will Satan reel him in? Will he get into his heart? See, the goal of ongoing temptation is to get a little bit of the hook in you. The the goal of ongoing temptation is to nick you, just a slight nick, so that later it grows into, a nurse would say, gangrene. It can just start with a nick. And so the bait is in front of you constantly to fall in some small way that ends in something larger. And in David's ongoing temptation with bitterness and anger and hatred, he comes out victoriously. Sometimes we think, oh no, man, remember what we said a few weeks ago, that his conscience got a hold of him and just bang, bang, got him because he cut off an edge of Saul's robe. But that was a victory. It was a victory in one particular way. He failed in his heart. He went and he cut off a piece of the robe and then there was victory. He stopped. 
It didn't get worse. He didn't kill Saul. He stopped himself. He had to fight his men and stop his men. He exercised what we might call spirit-empowered self-control. That's victory. That's a victory for us when we stop and we don't go further. Will ongoing temptations reel me in, reel you in? The goal is just to get a nick. The goal is just to get the hook slightly into your cheek. It all starts in the heart. It all starts with just a little thing. And you and I, we must be about the business of checking little things. Do not let jealousy grow. Do not let impure thoughts grow. If your eyes begin to wander, check your eyes. You and I, can we live with ourselves? Think about some of these questions. We live, as I said to you this morning, we live with our eyes in front of screens. Can you live with yourself after you get up from the screen? Or is your conscience crying out foul? What are we doing in the secret place of our heart? Are we staying pure or are we failing miserably? Even in our hearts, we have to cut off right hands. We have to, have to tear out right eyes. And we have to be those who hack, if you remember the story about Agag, we have to hack our Agags to pieces or Agag will hack us to pieces. David won a great victory here. He was tender. He remained in the cave while he was in the cave. He is in the word. He's in worship and he's in prayer and he's vigilant. Will he remain that way? We all know the story. David, and I I know that some people probably disagree with this, probably could argue with me about it, and that's fine. But I think that David, if he would have been out at work, if he would have been at work, he wouldn't have been wandering around on a roof one day. If he would have been at work, he wouldn't have been there. Well, but he was there. Nothing wrong with being out on a roof. But he looks, and he sees somebody. And he should have stopped. He should have went to work. (laughs) He should have left, but he didn't. He kept looking. And then he adulterated somebody. And then he tried to cover that up. And then he ended up murdering her husband. And you see, it's the little foxes that spoiled David's life. It was the little foxes that brought David down. Think about Joseph. Joseph was thrown in a pit by his brothers. And they sold him to an Ishmaelite caravan. He had all these years. I, I don't know how many years it was. Between 17, I'm assuming, until many years later, um... Jacob comes along, Jacob ends up dying. And for all these years, he has all this opportunity for hatred and bitterness to grow. And his brothers began to get really worried when their dad died. They knew he had the power to vent his spleen on them if he wanted to. And so they approached him and he said this, You meant it for evil. So always remember, what they did was wrong. Don't ever get a wrong. What you did was wrong. But God took what you meant for wrong and made it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many alive. And I would say this myself. I would say, number one, you see the great result is the salvation from the famine. But more than that, there was the forgiveness of his forgiveness to his brothers. There was forgiveness in the church. And so at the, end of, at the end of Genesis, you have a figure, a seed of Abraham standing up and forgiving his brothers. So this is what happens. And then Joseph goes out, tells them not to be afraid, and he comforts them. 
If he wanted to grow hatred, he sure could have, but he didn't. Here is a portrait of amazing self-control. Are we being reeled in by ongoing temptations or are we exercising spirit-empowered self-control? David teaches us to be men and women who remain in the Word, in worship, and in prayer so that we might be under control. I, I, I wrote this in my notes. You can do this. <laughs> you can do this because the Spirit of God works in you so that you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So first, you and I face ongoing temptations and there is victory. Second, we face times of apparent rest from temptations. And there's need to be vigilant. Apparent rest. And there's need to be vigilant. Augustine again says a saint's whole life is temptation. But it does appear that there are times when it's just kind of normal. Sort of normal. I'll share, I'm going to explain that in a second. But just think about it. There's the normal routine of life. We get up. We, I mean, I'm sure if we get up, we take care of the babies. We get up and we go to the next thing. We do our teeth. We do our coffee. We go to work. We go through the normal routine of things. We, we sin and we ask for forgiveness. We take care of these things and we're going along. And David has just had this great victory. And David now it moves from outside. He moves outside of cave dwelling life into the life of dwelling in the desert. It's different. Saul went home. Remember the last words we read in chapter 24? Saul went home and David went away. It's different now. Sort of business as usual. Really easy to be negligent. Really easy not to be so vigilant when you're not in the cave and fleeing away from a madman. And so if you remember as we were reading our text, did you feel some darkness there? Some of the old commentators say there are bad omens in this text. They call them bad omens. There's this feeling of darkness. The first point of the darkness is that Samuel is a great prophet and he dies. David's moving into a dark place. He's in a desert, but does he know it? Nabal's there. Well, what about Nabal? Did y'all remember what it said about him? He's a dark figure. Nabal's name means fool. Nabal is a wealthy man. We saw about how many things he owns. But he is only wealthy in the things of this world. He's a Calebite. Y'all remember Caleb? Joshua and Caleb, the two guys that gave the good report about what's going on in Egypt. I mean, in uh, the, the land of promise. But he's a bad uh, bad branch from the line of, Jake, of Caleb. And so all the wealth he has is earthly. He's a harsh man. He's an evil man in all his dealings. So there's darkness. There's Samuel and he's dead. There's Nabal and he's evil. And there's just one candle out there in the wilderness. And her name is Abigail. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. And nobody knows in the world why she's married to this guy. But she is. Here it is. She's a candle. And into all this darkness, David comes moving. He's fresh off this victory over sin. He's got all his 600 men with him. He's out there in the wilderness, and he's doing something that's very, very wonderful. He's out there providing a wall against the Philistines in for Nabal. Nabal has shears. Nabal, Nabal has 
sheep. Nabal has shepherds. And they, these men, are very well-behaved men. They don't steal anything from Nabal. They don't steal anything from those shepherds. And they all know it. He's providing a wall and protecting him from these Philistines. So the sheep shearing time comes along, and we read that there's a it's a festive time, and there's sort of a y'all you, you don't don't you hear this word they use on the news every now and then quid pro quo, this quid pro quo. Well, you know what quid quid pro quo means? It means that you go and sit down and you eat a dinner with your wife at a at a place that you know at a restaurant, and it means that your waitress comes up to you and she is going to provide for you. Bring your food to you. Take your order. Make sure you have a good time. And then you, quid pro quo, you're going to give her a favor in return for her making sure you get all your food. Well, these guys are out there. They provided a wall against the Philistines. They've been taking care of Nabal and all his shepherds and all this stuff. And sort of like, you know, it's time. We've done you a good deed. It's time for you to give us the tip you owe us. And so David sends ten men. They're strapping ten young ten young men to to go and kindly ask for a favor, and he tells them in verses five through eight. He says, "Go and greet him. Go and greet Nabal in my name, and thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them." nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. I mean, folks, listen, peace be to everybody. Salutations and benedictions all around. Safety and security for you. And how about a little favor for me, whatever you can find. Not a real difficult thing, not a real hard thing. David has expectations and desires that he wants them to be met. And his men are waiting on Nabal's response. Now, we didn't read about that response. It's the time of an apparent rest from temptation. It's time when we can be very vulnerable. David has not been vulnerable when he's been in the cave. David has been in the Word. David has the prophet. David has the minister of the priest. David has worship. David has prayer. David's been doing all of these things, but now he's in the wilderness. He's been doing a good deed for somebody. He's ready for that return favor. Will he be ready for what happens next? Satan likes to give us a, a little rest, or at least the idea that somehow he's not around. And then what he wants to do is come out of left field, catch us off guard with great ferocity. I want you, Have you ever seen, I just watched a movie the other day, and the guy that was walking around, this was just perfect for the sermon. He was walking around with a rubber band on his hand, and he was doing this, pop, 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 pop. That's what he was doing, just pop. That's what Satan does. That's ongoing temptation. Pop, pop, pop. And it's kind of normal life. Y'all, have you ever done that with a rubber band? Pop, pop. Have you ever ra- reared back a little bit further and let it rip? Pow! Right? That's what he's going to do. That's what he does. 
He gets you through going through these ongoing things and all of a sudden he rears back and lets it rip. And are you going to be ready for the pow? Am I going to be ready for this? Is David going to be ready for this? Am I going to be outsmarted? Am I going to be ready? We need to be vigilant and be filled with the Spirit. If you go to Ephesians 5.15, be wary. Walk around on the guard, you know. Let the words of Christ richly fill you, lest you enter into this temptation and not be ready. So let brings us to number three. You face unexpected temptations and there's need for sovereign restraint. Back to verse 10. Look at verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Are you ready for this? Y'all ready for this? Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Oh, this is a powerful pal. This is a pal. This is not a pop. This is a pal. I mean, this is David, you giving you a favor? Who are you? I don't know your dad. I don't know where you're from. Let me tell you something. Nabal knows exactly where he, who this guy is. He knows exactly what he's done. He knows that David's father. He knows David has been a great benefit and a wall for him out there. And he cold cocks David. Not no, but no with an insult. Nobody knows who you are. And by the way, are you just one of these rebels I hear about breaking away from their master and of, nobody knows who their, your master is? What, is? what is that line in one of those shows? No soup for you, right? No water, no bread, no meat, nothing for you, right? Here's something to just end passing to remember. What did David's ten men do? You know what, David's ten men, David's ten men go out there and do all this greeting and all this peace and all this kindness. And David's ten men, they turn around and they exercise some unbelievable self-control because I think they learned it from David himself. (laughs) They turn around and verse 12 says, they came and they told David, according to all these words, they were like David. Would David be like David? He had weathered so many injustices from Saul. He had exercised amazing self-control in the cave. He now, will he hold together or will he be reduced to water? Look at verse 13. Each of you gird on his sword. And David girded on his sword. David rode off with 400 of his men and he's going to kill Nabal the fool. He's reduced to water by a fool. What explains this? This is such a small thing. He has been up against a line. He has been up against 3,000 men with this line. And now he's crushed by a moth. Nabal is a moth compared to Saul. What explains all of this? I don't think he's been vigilant. He's not been careful while he's been wandering around. This pal got him. He can't stand the insult and he loses it. And folks, if there's anything to take away here, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of lines I want you to remember. 
Satan delights. He loves to strike us where we feel that we have excelled. Think about that. Where has David excelled? He has excelled in the area of self-control. He has excelled in the area of stopping and not going further. But now the rubber band has been drawn back three or four times and pow, and he's ready to kill Nabal and all his men. David, the Satan loves this. He gets us where we're strong. I I can tell y'all the story where I was reduced to water myself when I was about 38. David, apart from the Spirit of God, is reduced to being a Saul. David plans to kill Nabal and all his men just like Saul killed all the priests in Nob through the hands of Doeg. It's no different from David and Saul apart from David's total dependence on God. And you and I are nothing but Saul's apart from total reliance. We could do all sorts of things, folks, apart from God. I know you've never done this, but I'm going to still ask you. You've been working all day. You've been giving yourself to total self-control because you need the paycheck. You keep the job. You endure insults and injuries. You put up with anything to take care of your family. People come up to you and they say, how do you do it? How did you put up with that guy saying that to you? (laughs) And then you go home. And over the smallest thing, you get very angry and mad. Why do we do that? Well, can I suggest to you it's because we come home and we live in a dream world when we come home. We think that in this dream world of ours, that when we go home, that uh, we don't need the same amazing self-control at home that we needed at work. When we need exactly the same thing at home that we need at work. We expect it. Not to be there, but sin still remains and we still need the Spirit of God working in us in our homes. Maybe we come to church. Doesn't this maybe explain sometimes why we're so much easier on our enemies and so much harder on people at church than we ought to be? We don't expect doctrinal soundness at at work. We don't expect ethical precision with some of our friends. We don't expect absolutely pure speech. But when we come to church, there's one little bitty thing and it happens and it turns us inside out. We expected in our dream world that everything was going to be okay in this place. And then all of a sudden somebody upsets the apple cart. The real test of this friendship in our church will be, are we going to be experts in conflict resolution? Because we're going to hurt each other at times. We're going to say things that are wrong. Instead of flying off the handle, if we do fly off the handle, we need to be quick to make it right, don't we? Will we be those experts in making things right? David is living in a world, dream world. He has a dream that Nabal will owe him respect. He has a dream that Nabal is going to give him a tip. (laughs) And he doesn't. You and I are faced with these kinds of expectations and there's the need for sovereign restraint. 
David and his men are strapped and ready to go. They're en route to Nabal, and David's on his way to make Carmel his knob. He's going to kill Nabal and all his men. It's going to leave a staggering scar on his conscience that's going to plague him the rest of his life unless God sovereignly intervenes. And guess what? God sends intervention. It comes in a skirt. Her name is Abigail. Nabal's wife gets word that David is on the way and she loses no time. She gathers provision and she's off. David is coming down the ravine. She's coming up the ravine. And when she comes to David, she bows low to the ground and she says, On me, my Lord, be the blame for my husband's wickedness. On me. She will keep David from revenge. She will keep David from one day having a scar on his heart that he will look back and it will plague his heart. Just plague it out. She pleads for forgiveness in the place of her husband. And this is what David says in verse 32. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who kept me this day from bloodshed, and from avenging myself by my own hand. God sovereignly restrained David, and he used a woman in a skirt. God stopped him using an intelligent and beautiful Savior. Oh, how we should be so thankful for our skirts, our Saviors in skirts. Mothers, this is a Mother Day, Mother's Day note for the mothers. And oh, how we husbands should be thankful for the skirts that sit beside us. God uses these women to stop us from sin. God uses these women to provide for our needs. God uses these women to keep us when we're bent on doing what is wrong, to stop us in our tracks. In young people, I've got, we got one young person here We complain sometimes about our mothers. They're worried and bothered over much. They stop us, though, from sinning. They keep us from doing terrible things. And yes, God forgives us from terrible things. But isn't it good to be stopped from doing a terrible thing that would cause us a scar, that would cause our hearts to to be hurting the rest of our lives? Thank God for His intervention through these skirts. Thank God most of all for Jesus Christ who, using the words of Abigail, said this, On me and me alone be the blame for your sins before God the Father. Me for them, me for them, so that they might be saved from sin, so they might be saved from the terrible consequences of sin. Would you be like David tonight? Would you bless the Lord? Bless the Lord for Jesus Christ who saves us from our sin and saves us from separation for all eternity. And would we praise the Lord and say, Bless the Lord for stopping me in my tracks. Thank you for these skirts that are in my life, whom you saved and whom you loved so much to step in and restrain me from sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you for what you teach us. And we praise you, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ, for how he steps in and takes the blame for our sins when we are the sinful and he is the innocent. We thank you for our salvation.
from so many terrible consequences. And we thank you for our mothers, especially as we think about the end of the sermon, who step in and stop us many times from doing what we would do so that we would stop and repent and do what you want us to do. Help us to be praising you all the way home and saying, Blessed are you, O Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ and for our moms and for our wives and for the wonderful women in our lives. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.